Matthew chapter 10. We're going to be starting with verse 24. Uh, this is the remainder of Jesus' warning to his disciples uh, concerning the mission that they're about to go on. I didn't say stand up yet. <laughs> um, there you go. False start. Um, it's not football season yet. Anyhow, this is the remainder of his warning to the disciples as they're about to embark on the mission uh, that he is sending them on. And uh, this mission, of course, is to the lost sheep of Israel. This is still to the Jews. And uh, even after the message that we looked at last week, this message, I think, especially in the first three verses, um, is, is even more ominous than what we saw last week. Uh, this this kind of this is the the exclamation mark on the warning uh, before we get into um, the the last part in ver- starting in verse twenty six. So let's all stand now for the reading of the word. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, once again, as we... Open your word as we read your word. We want to be good stewards. We want to understand what is written. We want to find the principle and how we can apply it to our lives today. Uh, Father, I pray that our eyes would be open to see your message. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat. So, Jesus makes a statement there as I was studying, uh, reading through a couple of commentaries. He, He makes a statement that no... No disciple is above his teacher or a servant above his master. There are many, many, many cases of students who wind up surpassing their teacher, Uh, whether that be a a music prodigy, you know, a young student who starts out taking music lessons when they're very, very, very small, and then by the time they're an adult, they are way more accomplished than the teacher ever was, or an architect, or a carpenter, or all kinds of different... um, cases where a student surpasses the teacher. So that's not what Jesus is talking about, obviously, here. When he's talking about a student who is uh, above his teacher or greater than, he's talking about a relationship of positional authority. All right, I'm, You're going to have to forgive me here if you don't understand this. That uh, I, I apologize, but this is the best way I know to explain this. In my time as a military instructor, there were a lot of cases where I had students who had more rank than I did. 
Now, if I was a tech sergeant, they were a master sergeant or a chief master sergeant or a captain or a, 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 even in one case, I had a colonel in my class. As a tech sergeant, I was teaching somebody who way outranked me. But when we were in that classroom, I had the authority as the instructor, as the teacher in the classroom. What I said went. Now, I couldn't abuse that authority. That, was, that would not have been smart or safe. But when it came to the classroom, the authority rested with the instructor regardless of rank. This is the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about. The authority rests with the teacher. And Jesus is saying this in the context of the previous paragraph, the the warning there, where he's told the disciples to expect persecution, to expect them to drag you into the synagogue and have you flogged, to take you before the kings and the governors and the Gentiles, which is a, a nice way of saying they're going to have you put to death. Jesus is talking about this when he says, if they hate the teacher, what do you think the chances are that they're going to let the student get off without that kind of hatred? None. As a child of God, as one who bears the title Christian, each person who has placed their faith and trust in the work of Christ has staked a claim to the identity of, that Christian represents. Christian means little Christ or Christ-like, right? It was first a term used as a a term of uh, insult for the followers of Jesus, and now we bear it as a badge of honor, right? We are commanded to repent and be baptized, which is a sign of our identification with Christ, the, the you know, our, our Tuesday night Bible study we're doing at my house, uh, Danny is taking us through things that are particular to Baptists, and one of those is immersion, baptism by immersion. It is that sign of the burial and resurrection, right? So we identify with Christ. We're commissioned to make disciples, which means we share our faith with other people, which exposes our identity to unbelievers, or it should further expose our identity to unbelievers. Now, further expose means that people know that we're Christians, right? Do they? That's the question we have to ask. We should already be known by our faith. We should already be known by the faith that we proclaim that we have. The way we act, the way we talk, the way we think, the way we process things those should show whose we are. But many times we're undercover. We distance ourselves from Christ because we don't want the persecution of the world. We don't want to put up with the hatred. Uh, again, going through one of my commentaries, they asked the question, when was the last time someone hated you because of your faith? Now, there are lots of people who don't like me. As lovable as I am. <laughs> I'm glad that my family is being quiet. There are lots of people who don't like me. But in many of those cases, they don't like me because of personality conflict, because of uh, something that I've said, something that I've done. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about hating me because of my faith. Somebody who doesn't like me just because I bear the title Christian. 
I once heard a preacher say, uh, this was uh, in one of the Promise Keepers conference, he said that the way of righteousness is narrow and it's one way. It's like a one-way street. And the way of the world is the opposite direction and it's wide and there's a lot more traffic on it. And if you're driving, if you're on the, if you think you're on the way of righteousness and you don't have people beeping their horns and flashing their lights at you because they're trying to tell you that you're going the wrong way, you might be on the wrong road. See, the point here is the world is going to be against the people who belong to Christ. We're going to run into opposition. Over and over and over and over again, the New Testament writers tell us to be content in our circumstance. And I've heard some good preachers, I've heard some not-so-good preachers, who always, always, always talk about that in terms of financial circumstance. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you, right? So that means if you don't have a whole lot of money, that's okay. God's still got you. And that's true. But, you know, Paul wasn't necessarily talking about that when he was detailing his being shipwrecked and being beaten to death and all of the other things that he went through. He wasn't necessarily talking about his financial status. He wasn't talking about his portfolio. Now, he did tell the Philippians, I have learned to be content whether with much or with little. But the point here is that we need to be content. We need to be content to suffer the same thing that Christ suffered. And in the United States, we're not. We are not. We are a bunch of pampered, spoiled Christians. Because for 200 and almost 50 years, I'm not taking the time to do the math, we have had a protected status in this country. We don't have to worry about the police knocking the door down because we claim the name of Christ. We don't have to worry about being beheaded as we walk down the street because we don't follow a different state religion. The Constitution protects us from that. The Constitution tells us that there is no state religion, period. Okay? But the fact of the matter is, because of that protection, we don't have to fear persecution. These 12 men were going out into a pack of wolves. Remember, Jesus said, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. I'm sending you out totally defenseless. I don't want you to pack a sword. I don't want you to, I don't want you to pack extra money. I want you to go and let people provide for your needs as you go and you preach the gospel. No defenses. We need to be content to understand, like Jesus says, that it's enough for the disciple to be like the teacher. If Jesus was hated, we should expect to be hated if we teach what he teaches. If we're not hated, if the people aren't flashing their lights at us and beeping their horn at us, because we're going counter to traffic, we're probably not going counter to traffic. You get my point here. In verse 26, I'm sorry, in verse 25, 
He says, if they called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Jesus is talking about when the Pharisees and the scribes, when he cast the demon out. Remember that? They said, well, he does it by the power of Satan. Well, how much more are they going to accuse us if we're faithful and do what Jesus commanded? So with that dire warning, with that, I told you, these first couple of verses, they, they, that's more ominous, as far as I'm concerned, than what we read previously. That's a little bit more promising. They have equated Jesus with Satan. How do the Jews deal with something that is satanic? They kill it. This is what the disciples have to face. And now we come to verse 26. Jesus says, Have no fear of them, for nothing that is covered will not be revealed uh, or hidden that will not be known. Um, Basically, Jesus is talking here about the omnipotence of God, the omniscience of God. When the judgment comes, and, and, and I know... This is almost no encouragement to somebody who is facing an assault. This is almost no encouragement to somebody who really fears for their life. But ultimately, this is, this is, as much, this is the best encouragement. Because Jesus says, no matter what happens, even if these twelve were to be killed by the Pharisees and the scribes, the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, would not escape the wrath of God. No matter the skeletons in the closet of the Pharisee, God knows. No plot, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck you from his hand. This is where that comes from. The idea that there is nothing that they can do that is going to cause God to be su- surprised. Now, he doesn't tell them that they won't be killed. <laughs> you catch that? Jesus never promises life and prosperity. Anybody who ever tells you that Jesus wants you to be healthy and rich is lying. Because that's not what the Bible teaches. All right? He doesn't tell them that their mortal life is protected. And in an in a odd sort of parallelism, because he says, don't fear anything that is covered will be revealed. Anything that is hidden will be known, right? And then in, in a kind of parallelism, a kind of parallel statement, he says, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Whatever Jesus teaches whether it be in a public study or in a private study, whether it be a conversation just between the disciples and Jesus over dinner, or whether it be him sitting on a mountainside teaching hundreds and thousands of people, he says, proclaim it. Later on, I was, I was listening to a, a podcast this week. Um, it was actually from the week leading up to Easter. And uh, they were talking about Jesus on trial as he is before the, the former high priest, Annas, they, they're questioning him on his disciples and his teaching, right? Which is illegal in a Jewish court. And Jesus says, call in your witnesses because everything that I have said is what I've said in the open. 
Jesus has no skeletons in his closet. He has nothing to hide. There's nothing that Jesus taught that he was afraid to come out. Why would he be afraid? He tells the disciples when they stop in the, the village of Sychar, they're traveling from Jerusalem up to uh, Galilee, they stop in the village of Sychar and the woman comes out. Just before that happens, he tells them, it is my bread and butter to do the will of my Father. My very sustenance, everything that Jesus lived for was to do God's will. So we shouldn't be worried about the things and the schemes and the plans of people. Because the worst they can do, and I know this sounds pretty bad, (laughs) the worst they can do is kill our body. I know that sounds pretty bad. But when it comes down to it, we don't need to fear those who can only kill the body. They have no eternal impact. And look, there are times when I wake up in the morning and I get done at the gym, I could sign up for somebody to kill the flesh. Okay? But Jesus says, Jesus says that we need to fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. What He's talking about there is that awe, that reverence, that respect for God. The only one who can destroy, the one who sends the unrighteous to hell. That healthy fear, not the terror that somebody is going to kill me because I'm proclaiming the gospel. If I should die for the sake of Christ, so be it. If I am hated because I proclaim Jesus' name, so be it. I should not be so attached to this mortal shell that I am afraid to speak the gospel. But that fear of God is something that should drive our desire to go and share with people. That's He's talking to the disciples as He's getting ready to send them out. It's, this is, this, this is his, his pet talk before they go on their missionary trip. And He says, fear the one who can destroy. Do what God says. Don't worry about them. And in case there's any doubt of His care for creation, of God's love for His people, Jesus makes this point about the sparrow. Two are sold in the market for a penny. Sparrows ain't worth a whole lot. They're really not. They're, they're a dime a dozen, to use the, the American colloquialism. right? But God's sovereignty ensures that the sun and the moon are where they need to be. That the rain falls when it's supposed to and not when it's not supposed to. That the atmosphere, God makes sure that we have air that we can breathe. Do you all get that? And even with all those big things, with all those big things like keeping the earth in orbit around the sun and keeping the the earth spinning on its axis and keeping the, the weather doing what the weather is supposed to do, God's not passive in all this. He's actively in all of this. I don't know how. He's God. You can ask Him when you get there. My point here is that He cares even about the sparrows that are worth nothing. Jesus says a sparrow won't fall from the sky unless God is aware. And then Jesus says, and for some of us this is a smaller number than others, Jesus said that God numbers the hair on our heads. 
if a sparrow is not an insignificant enough creature for you to know that God is concerned, God is concerned with every detail about us. He numbers the hair on our head. All right? He knows how much hair you have. He knows how many skin cells you have. He knows the color of your eyes. He knows the shape of your teeth. He knows every flaw in your body. Okay? He knows all of it. And Jesus says you are of more value than the sparrow. You're infinitely of more value than the number of hairs on your head. Listen carefully. Because this is Jesus' point. No matter what you may be facing, nothing is going to happen to you that's going to surprise God. Nothing that is going to happen to you is going to make God change His plans. Nothing that you face will cause God to step back and say, well, I didn't see that coming. That's not how God works. Nothing you face will make God turn His back on you. Now, I have to admit, verse 33, it's a little bit, little bit hard to, to, to digest. Okay, it's like, like that, uh, that cheap piece of steak that you, that you get your hands on. You know, you've got to chew it a little bit more in order to digest it. Verse 33 is one of those. Verses 32 and 33, they go together. Jesus says, whoever acknowledges Jesus before man, he will acknowledge before his Father. So, someone who is not ashamed to proclaim the name of Jesus will be saved, period. Jesus is his intercessor. When, when we stand before the throne in judgment, when the end of time is there and we step up before God, and God asks the question, why should I let you into my heaven? Why should I let you into my rest? Jesus is seated at his right hand and he's going to reach out and he's going to say to his father, he's one of mine. Okay, now God knows that. I know this is a picture to help us understand. Okay, Jesus intercedes for his people. Not one, Jesus says, not one who is given to me will be lost. We are his, period. It's irrevocable. Now, Verse 33, that's a little harder. Let me read that. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So does that mean that any person who denies Christ is lost or condemned to the fires of hell? It kind of looks that way. But if that's what it means, then I would be absolutely terrified for my salvation. Because there have been times where I have kept my faith hidden before men. If you want to see why I say I would be terrified about this, flip over to Matthew chapter 26. Flip to Matthew 26 and find verse 69. And this is either going to give you great hope or it's going to cause you great fear. Matthew 26 verse 69. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I don't know what you mean. 
And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse upon himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Okay? So why, if, if the plain reading of verse 33 there is that anybody who denies Jesus is condemned, why should I fear for my salvation? Well, look at Peter. Peter, three times, he denied Jesus, he denied Jesus with an oath, I promise you, I don't. And then he brought a curse on himself and started cussing to emphasize, I don't know the man. Now, if anybody fits verse 33, the plain reading, and should be condemned, then it would be Peter. Peter, who walked with Jesus for three years. Peter, of whom Jesus said, Blessed are you, Peter... For flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, right? And on this rock I will build my church, right? Now, I don't think he's talking about Peter. I think he's talking about the truth of who Jesus is. But Peter didn't just deny Jesus. He emphatically denied Jesus three times. Now, see if you've been paying attention. In the Scripture, when you see something repeated That means it's emphasized. That means it's really important. When you see it repeated three times, that is to the superlative. So you have good, you have better, you have best. Best is the superlative degree, right? It doesn't get any better than best. Best is the best, okay? So when you have something that's repeated three times, think about the the picture in Isaiah chapter 6, where you have the seraphim who are flying next to the throne, and they're crying out to each other. What do they say? Holy. No, not just holy, and not just holy, holy, but holy, holy, holy. God is holy to the superlative degree. Okay? Peter denies Jesus to the superlative degree. But Peter is not condemned. In fact, when Jesus returns after his resurrection, and and the disciples are back at their fishing right? Because they went back to Galilee, jumped in a boat, and started throwing nets out in the water. Jesus is sitting on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, cooking breakfast, and he restores Peter to fellowship. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Three times. See, Peter was not condemned. What Peter did was fear-induced, emotional Self-preservation. Here is a man who just, and and again, this was out of the podcast that I listened to, and I I really need to go back and and actually do a series on uh, the Gospel of John for Easter and about six months before, because it's going to take us that long to get through it. In the Gospel of John, we are told that a detachment of soldiers plus guards from the temple came to arrest Jesus in the garden. A detachment of soldiers in Roman history, a detachment. Now, Tim, 
How big is a detachment militarily? Right? Okay? A detachment of soldiers in the Roman army was a thousand troops. But we know that the Romans were a little short-staffed. So the Roman, the Roman detachment that was actually stationed in Caesarea Philippi was only about 700. So 700 men plus the temple police came to arrest Jesus in the garden. You remember what happened when they came and, and Jesus says, who are you looking for? And he said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And they all fell down. A thousand men fell down when Jesus said, that's me. And then he asked them again. Right? A thousand men just took Jesus into custody. And Peter followed to the trial, to the, uh, what passed as a trial, to the illegal proceedings. Peter knows that if he is associated with Christ, I mean, come on. One of the guys who challenged Peter is the cousin of the man that Peter did a Van Gogh on, okay? Took his ear off. It's the man's cousin. And he says, didn't I see you in the garden? No, no, that was somebody else. Okay? Peter is afraid for his life, which is exactly what Jesus is talking about here. Don't fear for your life, because God's got you in his hand. But Peter is afraid. He didn't repudiate his faith in Jesus, he didn't become unjustified, right? Jesus' statement, if you look up the Greek word there where it, that's translated as denies, that word actually translates better as rejects. The person who rejects Jesus in front of men. The person who has nothing to do with Jesus. Well, guess what? That person is called lost. That person is called unsaved. And what happens to an unsaved person when they go to the judgment? They are condemned, and they do wind up suffering eternal torment in hell. The person who rejects Jesus totally and fully, he does not get a second chance. He does not have an opportunity at the time of judgment to change his mind. His end is just as secure as the one who testifies about Jesus in front of men. So this whole warning here, this, this whole idea, that verse, verse 33, actually ties back to um, verse 15. It will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town, the people who reject the message of the gospel. Okay? So chapter 10, verse 15, ties to verse 33. It is a parallel statement. Jesus is talking about that final rejection. Now, here's the deal. Do we know when a person denies the gospel, denies Christ, when a person rejects salvation, do we know that that is final? No, we don't, which is a good thing. Do we know who's going to accept and who's not? No. It would be awesome if God had provided us with a way of knowing. It would have saved a whole lot of time. <laughs> if, if everybody who was going to accept the message of the gospel 
I don't know, had had a, a, a you know, a, a particular blemish on the side of their nose, a, a spot on their forehead, what, whatever. But then we wouldn't carry the gospel to all people. Because that's not how we operate. We would go out of our way only to find those people with the spot. Right? And that's not what God commands. Remember... Um, This morning in Sunday school, we even read the passage where Jesus was eating dinner with the tax collectors and sinners. When he challenged the Pharisees in his response, he said, learn what this means. I require mercy, right? Not sacrifice. See, our sharing the gospel with people is that act of mercy, is that act of grace, is that act of being Jesus' hands and feet. That's why he didn't tell us who to go to or who not to go to. So as we get ready to go this morning, and yes, it's early. I'm feeling generous and hungry. As we get ready to go this morning, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to ask yourself, what keeps you from sharing the gospel? What keeps you from telling people about Jesus? Now, there are times and places where it's not appropriate. If you go to a restaurant and it's busy and the waitress comes up to your table and she's got 17 other tables that she is waiting on, that would not be an appropriate time for you to take her through the Romans Road to Salvation because then you're stealing from her employer and you're stealing from her. That's not good. Okay? In my case, because of where I work, I work for the federal government. There are special rules I have to play by. And I can have a lot of latitude inside those rules, but I have to follow those rules. There are certain things I can and cannot do at work. Right? And if I'm at work, then I need to be working. That's what Scripture tells us. When you work, you work as though you're working for Jesus, right? Well, I'm not honoring Jesus if I'm stealing time from my boss. So there are rules, there are times that are inappropriate, but what I want you to ask yourself is, have I shared the gospel with anybody? Have I had opportunities to share the gospel with people? And when I haven't, why? What has kept me quiet? As you ask yourself that, as as you pray this afternoon, well, this morning, it's not yet afternoon, as you pray this morning, ask God to show you those places where you need to let go of that fear and to respond in obedience.